0: Good morning. I'm Dan Seitz. It's just great to have you here, either in person or online. Uh, in the book of Luke, which for the spiritual investigators among us is one of four life stories of Jesus that the Bible contains, we hear about a text official, a guy named Zacchaeus, a guy who probably did not have a whole lot of friends, uh, who's heard about Jesus and he wants to see him, and this guy has probably heard what everyone in the whole region has heard, that there is this guy traveling around and announcing that the God of Israel is finally coming back to his people after centuries of absence, and not just talking about it, but proving it with all sorts of spectacular deeds. He's he's healing people of humiliating medical conditions. He's he's whipping up dinner for thousands of people out in the wilderness with uh, just a few ingredients, and he's even changing the weather to help people out on a boat in a bad storm. And this guy, Zacchaeus, who hears about Jesus is very short, Luke tells us, He's worried that when Jesus goes by, he's not going to be able to see him. So what does he do? He climbs up a tree way up high so that he can have a nice, clear view of Jesus when Jesus passes by. Well, when Jesus does so, presumably with hundreds of people in his train and presumably with hundreds of people on each side of the road, what happens? Jesus stops. He looks right up to him and he says, hey, guy, skedaddle down because I'm having dinner at your house tonight. Some of us are too familiar with this story. Imagine if this were you. Imagine if you were Zacchaeus. It's a miracle that he didn't tumble right out of the tree, which wouldn't have been too bad because Jesus would have been right there to heal him, right? But nevertheless, think of the shock which must have coursed through this guy's circuits when Jesus, this electric figure, looks at him and zeroes in on him personally. And fellow Hillsiders, that's how I think we should feel when we read this morning's passage, Colossians 1:21 through 23. It really should be the occasion for our own Zacchaeus shockwave. Let's look at it. And I've asked a new friend, Isabella Canfield, who is a junior in our high school group here at Hillside Edge, to read it for us. And while she's coming up, if you have a Bible, now would be a good time to take it out and open it up to Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Uh, the oh, <laughs> you, yeah, sorry about that. Thank you. <laughs> um, the Word of God says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, have become a minister. Hmm. Thanks, Isabella. Hey, let's start by considering just the first two words of the passage Isabella read, and you, and you. If those words don't shock us, if those words don't put a hundred volts right through our circuits, boy, you are alive this morning. This is very, very exciting. You catch where I'm going. But if they don't shock us, you know, we've forgotten the context. You haven't forgotten the context, obviously. What has Paul just established in the previous section of his letter? And again, you know, and you know if you were with us two weeks ago when we unpacked verses 15 through 20 in a message that we called Seeing the Star of Creation from the Christ Hymn Observatory. and If you missed it, uh, you might want to get caught up and watch that message this week. But Paul has just established that Jesus of Nazareth Uh, This genuine flesh and blood human being who died in agony, nailed to a Roman cross, is the star of creation. He's the Lord of all. And to flesh that out more fully, Paul says, as the one in whom divine fullness dwells, Jesus perfectly embodies God. According to Paul in verse 15, it's amazing. Jesus is God's very own image. His icon in Greek, which means living embodiment. And second, Paul says, as the one in whom all things were made, Jesus is supreme over all things. And this means that Jesus is the boss of everything and everyone and then he even goes on to say, including the invisible, but nonetheless, very real spiritual forces, both holy and unholy, that live in the immaterial half of creation. He's over them. And then lastly, Paul says, as the center of God's cosmic reconciliation, Jesus is the head of the church, and it was from that third dimension of of Jesus's, what we could say, stellar identity that we got the big takeaway of the morning. Speaking of the big takeaway of the morning two weeks ago, I have a Milky Way bar for anyone who can tell me the big takeaway of two weeks ago. Can anyone do that? I have to tell you, blank faces in the first service. No one had any idea which was okay. I'll tell you what, I'll do this. I'll work with you. I'll give you the first sentence, okay, the first phrase. If the Lord of all is Lord of the church, the work of the church is pretty important. Remember that? Remember? Yeah. I'm keeping this one. Yeah, <laughs> keeping this one. <laughs> well, with all that Paul has established about Jesus in mind, that again, that he is the one in whom, through whom, for whom everything exists, that he's absolutely supreme, that he's absolutely singular, which means something really interesting. There's no category or set in which he and anyone or anything else are members on equal terms, no one. He's singular. But again, with all that Paul has established of Jesus in the previous section, can you see why those two words, and you, create such a shockwave? Because when we read them, again, keeping in mind the context, what do we realize? We realize that the star of creation is staring back. He's aware of us. I mean, catch this. This is verse 19. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then verse 21, and you... What does this mean? It means that the star of creation relates to you, to me, to us. And friends, these passages, these passages should should shock us. And in reading it, we should be knocked off the branch of any kind of spiritual complacency. Like Zacchaeus in his tree observatory. We, in our Colossians 1 observatory, should be amazed. And and frankly, we should be a little bit shaken by the reality that this luminous figure, this figure who has no rivals, who has no analogs, is conscious of us. That the Venn diagram of ultimate reality, that in that diagram, our circle And his circle overlap. He has us in his sights. And friends, this is an amazing claim. And this amazing claim, which comes to a sharp point right here in our little three-verse passage, is actually the presupposition of the entire Bible. The star of creation is staring back at us. He sees us. He knows we're here, each one of us. And it's in the midst of his own, again, we could call Zacchaeus shockwave, that the author of Psalm 139 asks this in verse 7 Where shall I go from your presence? Or where shall I flee from your, sorry, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. You know the answer. It's nowhere nowhere. He made us. There's nowhere any of us can go to escape the stare of the star of creation. He made us, and like us with our own children, His eye is upon us. Now, this raises a big question. I mean, what do we do with this? How in the world do we respond? And you might put it this way. In other words, as theological sky watchers standing at the top of the Christ observatory, what should we do when to our shock we see that the star is staring back? How do we respond when we learn that Christ, the Lord of all, has us in His sights? What do we do? Paul gives us two answers. Let's look at the first one. It's this, we savor our reconciliation and we live into its reason. Both parts are important. Let's take the first one first. Just after and you, Paul does something interesting. He describes our pre Christian state, he describes the country we lived in before we crossed over the border into the land of Christ through belief and baptism. And let me say this prior land, it was not Finland. Okay, the happiest country on earth for the fourth year running, I read recently and no offense to any Swedes here. I know this is a Covenant Church. But in the the second part of verse 21, Paul describes us very interesting. He says we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And for Christians, this verse instills the sense of having dodged a bullet, or maybe better, because we've been talking about space, dodging a big meteor uh, whizzing by in the sky as we sit oblivious on our little blue planet. Before belief in baptism, Paul says, we were estranged from God. We did not have a friendly relationship with him, and we, we might have thought we did, but that was an illusion if we take God's word very Seriously, before belief in baptism, all of us, every single human being, regardless of where we happen to be situated, every single one of us was dead set against God, irrationally angry with Him. Paul's term is hostile in mind. And on top of that, we were all living out that madness with just dumb self-skewering deeds of one kind or another. But then in verse 22, Paul gives us the good news that you could say it's the holy sedative for the adrenaline rush of and you. He says that God reconciled us to him through Jesus' real physical death. And at this point, we breathe a sigh of relief. We are in the clear. Yes, it is true. The star of creation is staring at us. He knows we're here, every single one of us, every single moment of our lives. Yes, we are not unnoticed. And yes, we were once his enemies, the nasty orcs to his Aragorn, you might say. But now, all is well. All is well because what has he done? He has cured us of our constitutional cussedness, and he has refriended us. Amen, indeed. Now, we know what reconciliation is. Obviously, it's restoration to friendly relations after a period of bad, but our appreciation for that now friendly state that we get to enjoy is intensified when we dip into the Greek. Check this out. Word translated reconciled here in verse 22 is apa. Katalasso, and it's an intensified form of the ordinary word which shows up throughout the New Testament for reconciled katallaso which we find in 2 Corinthians 5:18 a passage you know well that says all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us katallaso us to him hmm. but what's interesting is here in verse 22 Paul uses apa Kataloso. And you can hear, if you listen closely, to that intensifying prefix. And this is a word that only appears in Christian writings. You can't find it anywhere else in all, of Greek, in all of the Greek literature of the time. Perhaps some people think Paul made it up, but whether he made it up or not, whether he coined it or not, it's as if the reconciliation that God worked between us and in him, in Christ, it's so spectacular. It's so without precedent. In light of the separation that was there before and in light of the incongruity of the parties, God in his blazing holiness and us in our brazen rebellion that Paul actually needs to come up with a separate word, a word on steroids to capture it, apocatalosso. But to get back to the primary question, how should we respond? What should we do when the star of creation has us in its sights? Again, we should savor that reconciliation. We should enjoy it, not take it for granted. And this is important as well, we live into its reason. We live into the purpose for it because God reconciled us for a particular purpose. Well, what's the purpose? We see it right here, second half of verse 22. He says, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, when we read this verse, we naturally go to the individual sphere. We naturally think, oh, God has, he scrubbed me clean, and God has made me suitable for his presence. And of course, that is true, and it's a a thrilling reality that we will never come to the end of it. Because Jesus the King, our splendid King, because he died on the cross for us, now, in a way we could not before, we can enter God's holy presence. And we don't have to do it in fear. We can do it in absolute freedom, absolute boldness, absolute confidence, like uh, Ephesians 3.12 says. We can enjoy that loving and holy presence. We can praise him. We can actually take a moment to consider his excellencies and communicate that those to Him. It also means we can unbear our burdens before Him. For instance, when we are tied up in knots over our children, when we are sweating bullets over them, and we're all worried about our kids sort of all the time, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> we sweat bullets. A lot of spent shells at our feet, you could say. <laughs> you know, when they're little, like up till three years old, we just worry about keeping them alive, don't we? Just want to keep them alive. You know, when my guys were little, uh, and I've told them this, I had chronic nightmares about them falling from some high place. And over and over again, on many, many nights, I would bolt to sleep and try to catch them. And uh, I think it scared Allison to death. And, but she would be gracious, and she'd wake up, and in her grogginess, she'd say, oh, you know, did, did one of the boys fall from the Bay Bridge again? Oh. <laughs> and when were their teenagers... You know, we worry about their grades, their driving, their friends, whether or not they have the sense to avoid substances. When they're in college, we worry about their mental health. We're in a pandemic right now, a pandemic of mental illness among college-age students. You might have read about it. You know, university health centers are swamped, totally overwhelmed by the demand for mental health professionals who can help college students deal with anxiety And depression and eating disorders, the latter of which, eating disorders, have spiked during COVID. We worry about our college students. When they're young adults, we worry about whether they will ever be able to figure out a career, earn enough to support themselves, earn enough to live in Contra Costa County, meet someone who will be a faithful husband or a faithful wife. If they've come through recovery, which more and more young adults have, we worry about whether they'll be able to stay sober when the pressure of life really begins to hit. When they're in middle age, we worry about their marriages and how they're raising our grandchildren. Okay. You know, even if not incapacitated by those worries, most of us still carry very heavy burdens related to the people who are most dear to us especially those whose diapers we changed or, or those we gave milk when they were just a scrawny squawker. What's the point? Here's what. Because of those burdens we carry and many others, those are just the parental ones, you know, it's wonderful to know that we're reconciled to God. It's wonderful to know that we're permitted. In fact, we're not just permitted, we're commanded to come down from the tree of self-dependence and go to him, the one who is powerful and happy to help us. But, But what's interesting to consider here about the purpose of reconciliation is something that Scott McKnight points out. Again, famous biblical scholar and a favorite of the covenant church. He says that when Paul talks about reconciliation here in verse 22 and elsewhere, it's actually not the individual sphere or the vertical sphere that he has at the forefront of his mind. No, McKnight says that Paul has the horizontal sphere, the communal sphere. It's reconciliation with and into the people of God. Now, It would drag us down for me to show you precisely how McKnight arrives at that conclusion, but his point is plain, and it's this. To be reconciled here, it means not just reconnected to God, it means that, but more directly here, it means being reconnected, or perhaps better for the first time, connected at all, with God's family, God's light-bearing family family. And that means that to live into the purpose of our reconciliation is not just to go boldly before God as a solo flyer, but to live purposefully as a member of his squadron. To joyfully join with his people, to help them accomplish the exalted purpose that God has for them, to advance the reconciliation that God has already won in principle between himself and all things. Now, we said that here in our passage, Paul gives us two ways to respond. Uh, When we discover that Christ, the Lord of all, God's icon, the star of creation, the central and singular figure of all, has us in its sights. And the first one is to savor that reconciliation and then to consider its purposes, both vertical and horizontal. Here's the second. We follow the advice of Steve Perry. Okay, I'm getting some blank looks. You know what I'm talking about, I think. You know who Steve Perry is okay? The rest of you should know who Steve Perry is. I will say this, though. You are excused if you are under 40. Isabella Canfield is under 40. She's excused. She does not need to know who Steve Perry is, but the rest of you do. Who is Steve Perry? Steve Perry is the lead singer of the greatest rock band of the 80s, Journey. Thank you. And what is Journey's greatest song? Don't Stop believing. Don't stop believing. According to Paul here, the second way, and it's right here in the text, the second way we respond to the loving, tender stare of the star of creation is the advice of Steve Perry, don't stop believing. Look with me again at verse 23. And for context, remember the big idea. Remember that in the first two verses, Paul establishes that he has reconciled you. And then verse 23 Something very interesting. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul says that in addition to savoring our reconciliation and living joyfully into the reason for it, we respond to Jesus, the start of creation seeing us, by continuing in the faith. By living the wisdom of Steve Perry, don't stop believing, especially in the aftermath of a quake. And this is interesting. Scholars have pointed out that with this not-shifting language that we have here in the middle clause of verse 23, Paul's actually drawing on earthquake imagery. And this is imagery that would have been resonant with those first hearers Because the Lycus Valley where this church was located was earthquake country. In fact, get this. Peter, I think, will know this. Just five or six years after this letter arrived at Colossae, Colossae was destroyed by an earthquake. In fact, they've still never excavated the town. And biblical scholars think that someday when they're able to dig around, some of the interpretive mysteries of Colossians will be solved. So that's kind of exciting. But the point is, it was completely powdered, destroyed. Now, of course, as East Bay people, we live in earthquake country too, don't we? But when it comes to life quakes, every Christian everywhere lives in earthquake country. We all do. And we're never at any great distance from the next big trembler. And this is important to remember when we consider that we are actually never more at risk of not continuing. Never more at risk of chucking it all overboard. Never more at risk of of just pouring out the white gas and throwing a match on faith than in the aftermath of a big 8.0 on the life Richter scale. Life quakes rattle faith. And that's why we need each other. We need each other because as a general rule, though maybe this past year may be the exception, our lifequakes don't usually happen at the same time. And that means that when the ground is solid under my feet, it's my time to put on the work gloves and to sling on the headlamp and to pull my friend out of the rubble after his personal big one, his personal 8.0, to lift him up, to dust him off, and to help him in every kind of tender way to continue in the faith. And alternatively, when the ground is solid under his feet, then it's his time to sling on the headlamp and collar up the rescue collie and pull me out of the rubble after my personal big one. We need each other. We need through thick and thin relationships right here at Hillside, which practically means we need groups, and we need leaders to make them warm and comfy. Because without each other, we cannot, we will not, over time when lifequakes happen... We won't continue in the faith. We won't keep believing when the tectonic plates of our lives give way and our buildings shake, which they invariably will. At least, that is, until the ultimate big one. When that big one comes and goes and a new quakeless world comes to be. You know, you might know this chapter 12 of his pastoral pep talk, which is basically what the book of Hebrews is. This is so interesting. The writer of Hebrews describes Judgment Day, the royal appearing of Jesus to review and renew and restore and reign, describes that day and that collection of events as an earthquake. But then he says that the result of that ultimate cleansing of creation quake will be get this an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken that's hebrews 12 28 that's our hope that's our hope an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken and as we said at easter the lions have fallen for us in pleasant places And that means that if we have this moment, which we do, to live and to breathe, we have this moment to stay put and to not shift from the hope of that future. You know what's going to help us, what's going to electrify us for continuing this week in the faith? I know you know what it is. It's this meal that we're going to enjoy as a family. In these elements, which represent The broken body and shed blood of Jesus, not just the star of creation, but the lamb who was slain for each of us. This meal means that he will be inside us, empowering us, encouraging us, giving us the resources to give the self-giving love that he's going to call us to this week with our children, our parents, our friends, our neighbors, fellow hillsiders. He's going to be there. And he's going to strengthen us for everything he's called us to do. Here's how we're going to proceed. We're going to take just a few moments to prepare in silence. And then we'll get our elements ready. And then after praying for God's blessing on these elements, we're going to eat together as a family. So, take some time to prepare. Look look into the eyes of the one who has never had you out of his own sight for a second since he imagined you. Look into those eyes. Talk to him. Praise him. There's something that's eating at you right now, just give it to him. He's powerful, he can help. Feel his love. Forgive anyone you need to forgive. And then we'll come back and prepare. Now's the time for us to prepare our elements. Uh, If you have the bag that Michelle gave you when you came in, uh, take some time to prepare the elements for the people in your group. Don't feel any need to rush. Take your time. And then we'll pray together. pray together. Father, we thank you for the meal that we get to enjoy this morning as your brothers and sisters, or as your children, brothers and sisters with one another, filled with the same spirit, named to the same inheritance. And this sacred meal of bread and wine, the body and blood of your beloved son, the star of creation and our sin bearer. We're so thankful as a family for the fundamental reality of our lives, that the concrete foundation of our consciousness, that you have reconciled us to you. And where once there was hot resentment, now there's nothing but tender friendship, which we are so pleased to continue in this week by your Holy Spirit please bless what we are about to take in we pray in Christ's name Amen on the night Jesus was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's eat together Take a few moments to savor our reconciliation. Consider what its purpose might mean for us this week. All right. I'm going to
1: share a benediction with you from the book of Jude from the Amplified Bible. I like the Amplified Bible because it's louder. (laughs) I don't know how I come up with this stuff. Sorry. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling and to present you unblemished, blameless and faultless in the presence of his glory with triumphant joy and unspeakable delight to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and power before all time and forever. And everybody say. Amen. Come on, you're whispering. And everybody say. Amen. God bless you. A bless you go. Have a wonderful Have... week.